There's a uh, line in that text which uh, in 2017 is now an elephant in a text where it just says, honor the emperor. It's a text that sort of jumps off of the page at us uh, today in a way it did not do 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so the question is why? why? Why does a text like that sort of come to us and make us want to press back or ask questions or think uh, in a more particular way than it did uh, years ago? Well, a fascinating thing has sort of happened in Western culture. And that's as academies and government and uh, society has uh, attempted to desecularize the schools, the government, and everything, while not lamenting that, something has fascinatingly happened that theologians have sort of predicted would happen, and that's that when you try to get rid of religion in the center of uh, organizations and institutions, uh, it, it doesn't work. Because what's happened in American culture and Western culture is that they've tried to remove uh, Christianity and other religion in the middle of culture. Another religion has arisen in the midst of that culture. And what it is, is today an age where the central religion in the Western culture is a religion of anger. In the Atlantic, one author put it this way. He said, Today we're not dealing with rational discourse about politics, economics, and what is best for our culture and anymore. We are dealing with a religious cult of tens of millions of people who are addicted to anger, outrage, and hatred. Media outlets are the new priests, the new pastors, the new rabbis. Whether it be truth or lie, it is all gospel to those who hear their preacher. Issues that some have considered long to be questions of truth and reason are now simply just questions of religious faith. And so what, where we are is, is that division in our culture is not only justified, it is encouraged. There was an article in the LA Times uh, just before Christmas that gave several testimonies and stories to uh, people who were uh, telling their life that they were not going to spend the holidays with their family based on political convictions from the November election. That they said, they, we'd rather not even see you based on how you chose to go about this election. And I think that we can conclude across spiritual lines, across belief lines, is that we're in a phase of life right now where we don't know how to live with people we disagree with. We don't know how to live in a society with people who we don't see the same way the world is. We don't think that this is the best way for people to live. We don't think this is the best way for people to flourish. And we don't just disagree. We don't want to live in a society with them. Enter the words of Peter, where he says, keep your conduct honorable amongst the Gentiles. And that word for honorable could better be translated as praiseworthy or admirable. And so what Peter is advocating, what is putting before you this morning is he says, look, as a Christian in the Roman Empire, uh, you are not a welcome person. Your worldview, the way you see and understand reality is, is not going to be accepted, is not going to be received anyway. But I want to present for you a life that whether or not people agree or disagree with your belief system, they will find your life praiseworthy and admirable. Don't you long for people in your neighborhood to live admirably? 
Don't we desperately need, in 21st century living, a group of people who, even though people think their view on the world is crazy, they still think they live a praiseworthy life. With the way that you go out into the world, into institutions, in your personal life, in your business life, in your neighborly life, people observe your lifestyle and admire it. I think we long for that. I think we need that. If you want that, two things that Peter says you must do, you must bring into your life, you must think about and meditate on. If you want to live a praiseworthy and admirable life, one, you must know who you are. And secondly, you must just live in light of who you are. Very simple. Know who you are, live in light of who you are. First, he says, know who you are. If you look back in the text, he says this in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. It says sojourners and exiles. The NIV actually translates this, and I kind of like this better if you'll bear with me, as aliens and strangers. And how those words are meant to be uh, interpreted, and literally mean in the original language, as those who live in a country where they do not have citizenship and rights. And so what a Christian is, is somebody who lives in a world and a country where they do not have citizenship and rights. And look, Peter's not lamenting this. He's not mourning this. He's not sad about this. And he's not even he's not saying to Christians, I encourage you to go pursue a lifestyle that will make people think that you don't belong here. He's saying fundamental to who you are as a follower of Jesus, you don't make sense to the world around you. And the world around you should not make sense to you because who you are is an alien and stranger in this world. Now, why would he say that? Why is a Christian an alien and stranger in this world? Well, at the backbone of all of Peter's words is his view of salvation that he sort of begins to unfold for us in the beginning of this book. And I know that you haven't been going through 1 Peter, but he says this in in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has brought us into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what he means is that for Peter, salvation is it's not less than you being forgiven by God and declared not guilty before him and given eternal life. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. You see, what Peter has view in salvation is that what a Christian is, is somebody who has been brought up into the heavenly realms and shown what the world will become, shown your past to be completely wiped out, to be given a new identity in Christ, and shown that all things are going to be made right, all things are going to be made new, and to have this transforming experience where you taste God himself and the world to come, and then you go back into your life. About 10 or 12 years ago, there was an episode of uh, Grey's Anatomy, and just kind of put your judgment aside real quick and just listen for a second, (laughs) where the main character was caught up in an episode where uh, it was a boat wreck, and a bunch of people uh, were losing their lives, and it was a huge trauma event. And this main character, who had had all sorts of personal and psychological and relational problems, uh, lack of intimacy, couldn't connect with Uh, Men of the opposite sex couldn't have uh, deep relationships with their family. Uh, Falls in the water and uh, she makes no attempt to 
rescue herself and come out. And so as she's drowning, somebody pulls her up and she's not, uh, she's not, she's incapacitated. And at that point, the episode sort of takes two angles. On the one hand, it takes her into the hospital where they're trying to revive her and save her life. But the other part of the episode is the background where while she's incapacitated, she goes sort of into this other world and she begins to visit all of these people in her life who had died. And they begin to talk to her about uh, that you're really not as guilty as you think you are, that you're more loved than you really understand in your life. And it sort of climaxes with this moment where she meets her mother who had just passed away, who she thought never approved of her, who she thought never loved for her, who she was terrified to be in her mother's presence because her mother was so outstanding and amazing in her field. And the moment it happens where her mother looks at her and says, you are far from ordinary. And the girl goes back into her life and chooses at that moment that she wants to live. And she begins to say, my problems in life seem so silly now in light of what I've experienced. That's what a Christian is. That's what Peter is saying. He says, it's somebody who has gone into the heavenly realms and seen and tasted God in such a way and seen what the world is going to be through the resurrection and his return in such a way that you come back into life transformed by that and marked by a new hope. And what is this hope? What's the new hope? I mean, do, do you, if you step back and think about your life in any way, you have to sort of be honest and think that most of my life is built on stress and sadness with a little bit of joy and thanksgiving instead in there. Do you know this, that every relationship that you have right now is going to end in either death or brokenness? Spouses, children, parents, siblings, friendships, people are either going to move away or die. You can't read the news ever for a week now without seeing bombs, hatred, corruption, it's hard to watch and keep a smile on your face. It's hard to be thankful. Do you know that the hope of the world is not just that your sins will be forgiven, but that all of that will be gone, that all of that will be removed, that Christians don't just think that we're going to go up to heaven one day to this abstract place on clouds and sing hymns, but that we think heaven and God himself are coming here to renew and make all things right and to heal Santa Barbara. The things that we long for to be right here, the things that we wish would be renewed tomorrow, it's going to come here and renew all of it. And you one day will wake up from all of this into a community of eternal laughter. You're going to wake up one day and most of your life will be marked by laughter and joy. So that the point of all of this life, it will just feel like one inconvenient night in a bad hotel. And look, in the, in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is historical and real proof that you know that's coming and that you can bank your life on that. And so for anybody whose eggs are in that basket, who thinks that's where the world is going, that this is where life is headed, is of course an alien and stranger in this world. And if that's where your hope is, if that's where you think the world is going, it's really hard to go back to life in any way the same way. And nobody put this better and more clear for us than Tolkien. At the end of the return of the king, do you remember? Everything has been made right. Everything has changed. 
everything has been restored and they're on their way back to the Shire. And Frodo and Gandalf have this interaction. Gandalf said, are you in pain, Frodo? Quietly as he rode by Frodo's side. Well, yes, I am, said Frodo. It is my shoulder. The wound aches and the memory of darkness is heavy on me. It was a year ago today. Alas, there are some wounds that cannot be wholly cured, said Gandalf. I fear it may be so with mine, said Frodo. There is no real going back. Though I may come to the Shire, it will not seem the same. For I myself am not the same. Look, what Peter is saying here is that what an alien and stranger is, is somebody who's been so wounded by the love of God and the hope of the world to come that you cannot go back to any part of your life the same way. Now pause. If you hear that and you think um, that this sort of explains why Christians are so unhelpful in this world, that's not where Peter is going. If you're you're skeptical of Christianity, it makes you think, well, this is the kind of teaching that I hate because it makes them unhelpful and unuseful in this world. Look what Peter says in verse 11. He says, as, as sojourners and exiles, as aliens and strangers. And what he means is that this identity, this hope is not what should drive you away from this world, but back into this world. Because what it means to live as an alien and stranger, it means to live in light of one world and for this world. And it is this mindset and this is reality is what overturned the Roman Empire. You see, anybody for centuries that had had a new idea, that had had a new movement in the empire and gathered a group of people had done one of two things. They'd either moved outside the empire and had gotten themselves outside of it in order to believe and practice it, and so it had no effect on the empire. Or they thought what their, their new belief and their new system had taught was that they must overthrow the empire, and so it it led a revolt. But Peter's not advocating revolt, nor is he advocating something removed. But what Christians did is they began to live for another world in this world. And it began to overturn the Roman Empire. We have a letter to a man named Dionysius from what we think is a distant uh, disciple of the Apostle John. And he wrote this, explaining Christians living in the empire. He said this, for Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. Yet although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each man's lot has been cast, and follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and matters of daily living, At the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their commonwealth. They live in their countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign country. They marry like everyone else, and they beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go as far beyond what the laws require. 
what the soul is to the body, that the Christians are to this world. Do you know why you can live that way? It's because what an alien and stranger is, is somebody who's been set free from the despair and the bondage of this world to live by another world, but yet in this world. This is what Peter means in verse 16 when he says, live free. But don't use your freedom as an abuse to take advantage of this because you're not citizens of this world, but a true foreign citizen, what they will do is admire a gift to a country but with no allegiance to it and care for it. Now let's get personal for just one second. I know that some of you, if not all of you, have felt in the last month or two like an alien and stranger somewhere. Whether it be in this town or in this country, maybe in your family or maybe in this church, you've not felt like you belong, like people understand you, like you've had connection. Let me ask you this. What comforts you in that feeling? What comforts you in that lonely feeling of like you don't belong? Because what Peter is offering you here is he says, look, the hope and the reality of what is to come, marking you as an alien and stranger, will set you free into this world and comfort you in that loneliness to know when you don't belong, there's a reason and it's promised hope that is to come. And then you can be set free to live as an alien and stranger amongst a bunch of people who don't want you around and might see the world totally different than you. But in order to do that, you must know who you are. Secondly, you must begin to live in light of who you are. Just like Frodo, you can't go back. You can't go back. And while Peter uh, doesn't limit it to this, he gives us three angles, three specific things right here where we can't go back the same way. We can't go back in light of our new identity as aliens and strangers through abstaining, through honoring, and loving. These are in the text, abstaining, honoring, and loving. First he says in verse 11, abstaining. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. What he's saying here is, is that there are values, there are norms in your culture that everybody just abides by. That everyone thinks that's normal life. That's what life is about. It's the pursuit of this. It's the adoption of this. It's the practice of this. And when you get this new identity, you are called to swim against the shore of many of those values. That you are called to abstain from those, to resist those, to live against a lot of the norms and values that many of those in this world that find normal call normal. Now, if, you, if that feels like what Peter's driving is an ascetic sort of lifestyle, or many people feel like this is where Christianity begins to be anti-body, anti-flesh, anti-things. Look what it says. It says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, this phrase, passions of the flesh, is translated from one Greek word, the Greek word epitumia. Epi is the prefix big, great, sometimes translated over-magnified, Tumia is the Greek word for desires. So what Peter is saying here is, is that you're called to abstain, to resist from over-magnified desires. And sort of what he means here 
is that what happens uh, with sin in the heart is that sin makes you think that this world is all there is. That this is all we get. That this is the essence of life. Therefore, you instinctively have to go out into the world and look for something to make the sinner and the most important thing in your life. And so what this will make you do is it will make you look into things for which God gave you a desire for, like a job, or like a family, or like a relationship, or like a hobby. And you have to now look at that thing as not just a gift in life, not as something that enjoyable in life, not even as something important in life, but as life itself. Because now this desire it exists, or see these things in this world exist in order to meet this desires. David Pallison, a um, scholar out of Philadelphia, puts it this way. He says, over-desires or epitomias are an improper way to meet legitimate needs. And so what Peter, look, he's not saying resist the good things of life. He's saying as an alien stranger, what you should begin to do, because you have seen the world to come, because you have seen things for what they really are, you come back into this world and treat things the way they are. Which means good things in life are not the meaning of life. Because they can't hold the weight of life. Think about it this way. Um, a crystal candlestick. Uh, some of you have them in your house, on your table, on your furniture. is a great holder for a candle. But if you take that same crystal candlestick and you put it under a car to try to jack it up, to change a tire, what happens? The car crushes the candlestick. Now, does that mean that the candlestick is not a good holder? That it can't hold anything in this world? Absolutely not. But it cannot hold the weight of the car. Look, if you try to put the meaning of life on your children, like a car or a crystal candlestick, you will crush them. If you try to put the weight of your job, it will, life will crush you. And Peter says, what an alien and stranger is, is somebody who has seen that world and comes into those things and says, I'm going to abstain from treating those things as the center of life. And it's not a cynical removal. It's deferred expectation, understanding life is coming. And so you abstain. Secondly, you begin to live like that by honoring. It says this in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be, hear this, the emperor as supreme or a governor's sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And then in verse 17, it says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. With your new identity as an alien and stranger, you come back into human institutions. It says, be subject and honor those. And this is stunning, stunning counsel for Peter. It's stunning for two reasons. One, there's a lot of biblical counsel and sort of the typical pattern of faithfulness throughout the narrative of Scripture is that when human institutions contradict the law of God, the answer of faithfulness is to resist that. We see this, for example, with the Egyptian midwives who resist the commands of Pharaoh to kill every firstborn and they preserve and save some children. It's commended as faithful. 
Uh, Daniel is prohibited by law from praying, yet his uh, praying against the law openly is committed as faithful. And Peter himself, uh, we know in Acts chapter 4, is commanded by law to stop preaching the gospel. And yet Peter himself says we must but obey God and not man. Yet here he says to these human institutions, you must be subject. It's also stunning because of who we think the emperor was at this time. We're pretty sure from what scholars tell us that it was Nero. If you don't know anything about Nero, Nero is about the most terrifying man who's ever been an authority. He would take Christians and burn them on lampposts at his party as torch, for, at, for torches at house parties at itself. He hated Christians, and ironically for Peter himself, he would go after Peter and have himself crucified. And to this, Peter says, honor him. And we can learn this. That submission for Peter is not conditional upon the justice or godliness of the ruler. And why would he say this? To, why would Peter say this to us? Well, he's trying to protect against the abuse of freedom for Christians. That, that the typical sort of reaction that Peter feared was that if you begin to understand that there, you're an alien and stranger and that you're not truly a citizen in this world, that you would look at leaders and institutions who you disagree with, who violate your rights, who violate things, your preferences, your desires, and you would say, I don't owe him anything. I'm not for him. But Peter is painting out something that would have been so radical in the Roman Empire. You see, there were, there were two reactions to the emperor. On the one hand, you worshipped him, where he was divine. But on the other hand, you resisted him and revolted against him and tried to start your own revolution. But Peter says, don't worship him, don't revolt in the emperor, honor the emperor. Which simply just means, give him what is due. And I love this word that he uses. It says, subject yourself to human institutions. The word subject is the Greek word, hupotasso, which simply means this, and this is great counsel for you. Volunteer your attitude for cooperation. This is what Peter's commending. Even if you don't agree, even if it's difficult. And listen, for Christians in the Roman Empire, they were wanted dead. They were wanted gone. And Peter is saying to Christians, volunteer your attitude for cooperation, for the betterment of the Roman Empire. And if you're an alien and stranger, he says, you know your hope is. It's not in this empire. It's in the world to come. Don't worship this empire, emperor. Don't resist him. You know who the tree king is. Honor this man. Give him what is due. And if you begin to do that, it will do four things for you. If you begin to volunteer your attitude for cooperation, one, what it will do is it will free your soul. And I think a lot of people need this right now to have your heart and soul freed from anger and disagreement. And it will help you realize that your preferences and your interpretation of the world is not the center of the world. It is not how things revolve and it's not how things are going to work. And if you begin to volunteer, no matter who's up there, no matter where it is, you begin to be set free a little bit in your heart. Secondly, you begin practice putting your hope in the world to come. 
Look, if, if you want to live as an alien and stranger, and you want to be set free in this world, how are you going to practically do something like that? And not, and not just keep that as sort of some abstract statement about uh, you know, randomly living for heaven. How will you do that? Unless you practically do things like put yourself under things that you don't necessarily see the same world the same way. Because when you do that, you are actively putting your hope not in this world, not in this, but in that. Fourthly, what you begin to, thirdly, what you begin to do is you begin to show your neighbor that heaven and earth are connected. Okay, if you're not a, a Christian, you would not call yourself a believer. Um, I understand this about you, that you think heaven is a strange idea and that it has nothing to do with this world. If you don't know that, you need to know your neighbor thinks that. That living for heaven seems odd. It seems like living for something out of touch with this world. We've written songs about that. But what this shows you is that you can be the best citizen. You can be the most helpful neighbor. You can be the best volunteer. Why? Because of the other world that is to come. And fourthly, what this will begin to do, if you can volunteer your attitude for cooperation and honor institutions, is it will begin to make you live like Jesus did. His attitude and his approach to human institutions was fascinating. There's an amazing place in John 19 where Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And if you don't know who Pilate was, Pilate was a regional governor for the emperor whose words and actions were accepted without question where what he said went unchallenged, and he's standing before Jesus with Jesus on trial, and he asks him a question, and Jesus won't answer. And he looks at him and says, don't you realize that I have the power to set you free or to kill you right now? And Jesus doesn't do what I would do, which is either, uh, well, one, I'm amazed that Jesus doesn't look at him knowing he's the son of God, knowing what's going to happen, and say, Shut up. Do you know who I am? Like, do you know who you're talking to? N nor does he do what I would do, which is sort of think, uh, how do I get out of this situation without dying? Like, what's the game here that's going to make me, like, friends with this guy? Nor does he do what a lot of politicians would do that would sort of look at Pilate and say, you know, with your influence and my power, like, <laughs> we could run everything. Like, we could take over the whole world like that. But Jesus looks at this man who says, don't you realize what I can do to you right now? And says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Translation, I live for another world. But right now, I'm here with you. And so I'll submit myself to you. I'll volunteer it. Do what you will. abstaining, honoring, as alien and strangers. But thirdly, he says, loving. Verse 17, beloved, excuse me, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brethren. I don't have time to go into this, but he says, honor everyone. Look, Christians were so loathed and despised in the Roman Empire, and yet Peter is saying, against, against your instinct, Honor everyone. Treat everyone as if they are in the image of God. 
as if God made them. Treat everyone with dignity and respect. And you know, this, this is honestly what makes Christianity a unique worldview in light of a lot of worldviews. A lot of worldviews tell you to love the poor, encourage you to love the sick. There's an only one worldview that tells you to love and honor your enemy. But as an alien and stranger in this world, what a Christian should do is be in this world honoring all sorts of people that they disagree with. Should honor people who treat you poorly. Should honor people who want nothing to do with you. Look, an honor doesn't mean bow down and give them everything, but nor does it mean resist and stay away. It means to give people what they are due. And you can begin to do this because it says in verse 11, beloved. Look, if you're going to live a daily and a stranger and you're going to abstain from the values of this world, you're going to honor institutions and you're going to love people in your neighborhoods who want nothing to do with you, you must live as someone who is beloved. And what it means to be beloved, literally in the text, is it means to be worthy of love. That you begin to go out into the world, you begin to go out into relationships not to get something, not to take something, that you're not treating people well so that they will turn and give you something back. You're not playing that game. You're off the treadmill. That the heart and the cup is full because you are somebody who is worthy of love. And this is an astonishing word for Peter to use. How, is, how can a Christian be called worthy of love if our view of salvation is that you're unworthy and that you can't earn this yourself? Because you yourself as an alien and stranger are united to somebody who is the ultimate alien and stranger who came into this world abstaining from all the things that the world finds central, important, and valuable, who came into human institutions. He could have crushed them all in a heartbeat. He could have wiped them away with just a power of his word. And yet he humbly smiled and honored all of them. And yet all sorts of people, they reviled him. Even his own did not want him. He honored and loved them anyway. And it is in him it is through him that even if you're struggling with those things, even if those things are not things that you think you can go do, the things that you can begin to live in light of, in him you are still called beloved, declared worthy of love. And look, if a society of people began to live this way, what Peter says is that neighbors around you will begin to see that this is beautiful. And it is that demonstration what will begin to be a testimony and a witness and will bring light into darkness. You know, it's not beautifully crafted, interesting defenses of Christianity, intellectually stimulating arguments that's going to draw in Santa Barbara. What will transform your community is a bunch of people who begin to live as aliens and strangers for this world in light of that world. And what Peter says is it will be called beautiful. I'll tell you somebody who did this. pastor tells a story where uh, a woman comes up to him at the end of a service and she says, I want to tell you how I came to this church. He said, okay. She said, about a month ago at work, I screwed up big time and I, I was ready to lose my job and I thought I was going to be fired. 
which would have ruined my life as a single mother trying to live in this city. And yet my boss, I found out, took the blame for my mistake. And so I went to him and I said, why did you do this? Why did you, make, why did you take the blame for my mistake? She said, I've had a lot of bosses in life who took the credit for my work. I've never had a boss who took the blame for my mistake. And he said, well, you're a great woman. We love having you here. You're a hard worker. I know you didn't mean to do it. And with my tenure and credibility here, I knew it would just be a slap on the wrist. And we didn't want to lose you. And she said, no, 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 no. Why did you do this? And he said, do you really want to know why I did this? She said, yes, you must tell me why you did this. He said, well, I'm a Christian. And I go to a church here in this city where we talk, sing, pray, and confess the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ every week. And we talk about how Jesus took the blame for us. And he goes out and loves us by grace alone. And that both frees me, empowers me into this world to both be that for other people and live freely in light of that myself. And so that's how I model life. That's how I try to live life both in the workplace and outside the workplace. She said, I looked at him and said, what kind of a church is that? He said, one that lives for heaven, but in this world. And that is beautiful. And people who live like that truly are aliens and strangers in this world. May you be a church like that. And your neighbors find it beautiful. All for the glory of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, living for heaven, um, living as aliens and strangers, living for a hope that we believe but have not yet tasted can at times um, feel foolish. It can at times uh, feel impractical. It can at times feel unhelpful. By the power of your Spirit, would you draw us up into the heavenly places that we may taste the world to come and be set free to come back to live in this world as aliens and strangers for our neighbors. In Christ's name, amen.